For the past couple of weeks on the virtual Bible study, we've been dealing with the subject of snake handling. I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to that or not. It was first a discussion of a preacher in West Virginia who died while handling a snake in a religious service. And then this past week, we interviewed the fellow who preached his funeral and who himself also is a snake handler who, by the way, has himself been bitten four times and almost died from a snake bite handling snakes in religious services. Where in the world did they come up with that idea, someone might ask? Why would someone think to handle poisonous snakes and call it an act of religious service or worship? Where did they get that? Well, they got that, of course, from Mark chapter 16, the text that Britt read for us just a little while ago, where in verse 17 of Acts, of Matthew 16, Matthew 16 verse 17 says, These signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. This was a promise that Jesus made to his disciples just before he ascended to heaven. Verse 19 goes on to say, So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. Verse 20 is really key. They went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. We believe that Mark 16 is talking about things that would happen as the kingdom was advanced, as the gospel was preached. Uh, and miraculous signs of the Holy Spirit were a part of that. Imagine the situation as the, the apostles and other early Christians went about preaching the truth. They went into new places and they were preaching a strange doctrine. Why should they be believed? Upon what basis should people accept the fact that they were proclaiming a new message from God? The proof of their message was the miraculous signs of the Holy Spirit that they were able to perform. They preached new doctrine. They performed a miracle and people said, oh, there must be something to that. And that's exactly what verses 20 is saying. Those signs, tongue speaking, uh, healing, casting out devils, even handling snakes or being, or, or, or being in an encounter with a snake, drinking a deadly poison, but not being harmed by it. All of those things were miraculous signs of the Holy Spirit that served to confirm that the message that they were preaching was from God. We believe, and we've studied many times, we need to continue to study what the New Testament teaches concerning the fact that that age of miracles has come to an end. God is not empowering people by His Holy Spirit to perform miracles in the world today. They were for a specific time and for a specific purpose. The miracles were for the purpose of revealing and confirming God's truth. Once that truth was, was revealed, it no longer needs confirmation, and God took the miracles away. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 through 13 tells us that was what was going to happen. All right, now our study tonight is not about miracles per se, not about the end of miracles as we have studied before. Our study tonight is actually about this text in Mark chapter 16. Did you know that there are some people who dismiss this as even belonging in our New Testaments? Mark chapter 16, actually beginning at verse 9, they say from verse 9 down through verse 20, doesn't belong in our Bibles, that it's not part of the original inspired text, that it was added later. Um, and so we should not even regard it. 
Now that would solve our problem about the snake handlers because this is the only passage in the New Testament that makes that promise of being able to handle snakes and not being harmed by them. So if we kicked out Mark chapter 9, or Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, we'd be rid of the snake handling dilemma, but be careful of what you wish for because if you throw that out, you're also throwing out verse 16, which we think is a very important verse. Remember in verse 16, Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. We use that verse, don't we, a lot of times to stress the importance and necessity of baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Should we throw it all out? Now, we don't have to have Mark 16, 16 to confirm the need for baptism, and we don't necessarily need it to prove the purpose and duration of miracles should we throw it out? Does it belong in our Bibles? That's the question of the hour. That's what we want to talk about for a few minutes this evening. Mark 16, verses 9 through 20. Does it belong in the Bible? Uh, that's what we're going to look at briefly tonight. Thanks for being here. We've got a little rain on a Sunday night, which is a blessing in itself. Uh, we have the blessing of being together with God's people to study and to worship. It's just been a great day. We're glad to end it by a time of worship here together tonight. Thanks for being here to be a part of this. Thanks for any and all who are visiting with us as well. All right, what about this question? We'll try to keep our remarks rather brief, but what about this question? Mark 16, 9-20, does it belong in the Bible? Well, if you're reading a newer version, you may find a footnote in, your, in the margin or in the center reference or someplace there Maybe there's an asterisk or a little note in italics. It started, those footnotes started being added with the American Standard Version in 1906. The American Standard Version says the two oldest manuscripts and some other authorities omit verses 9 to the end. That's what my version, my copy of the American Standard Version says. You probably don't, not very many are still reading from the American Standard, but you might be reading from the New American Standard, and the New American Standard has that footnote in it as well, and other, some other versions do also. So even in the, in the footnotes or the center reference in, in italics, some versions will say, these verses might not belong here. Now why did they start saying that? Why, starting with the American Standard Version, did they begin to put that note in there? The reason is that the American Standard and several versions that have followed, including the New American Standard that many of us like to read and use from time to time, those translations came from a different Greek text. The King James Version was translated from what's called the Textus Receptus or the Received Text. That was a text, a Greek text that was assembled from available manuscript evidence back in 1535, so that was a long time ago, uh, approaching 500 years ago, they put together that Greek text from the, the best information they had available at the time. They assembled it and said this is... Of course, we don't have any of the original uh, uh, documents, the writings of the New Testament. All those are gone. What we have is copies that were made. And so they took all the available information, the manuscript evidence, and assembled it together and said, this we believe is the, the best that we can come up with. This is the Greek that was originally in those documents of the New Testament. They called it the received text or the textus receptus, uh, and they began making translations from it. 
but in the 1800s, two manuscripts came to light that were somewhat different. Now, you may know the names of those documents if you've ever studied this before. The Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus were two manuscripts that were discovered later, a good while after the Textus Receptus had been assembled. These two additional manuscripts came to light. They were good manuscripts, nearly complete copies of the New Testament in these two fourth century. They believe they dated to the fourth century. Uh, and, and that being the case, they think maybe that these manuscripts were older than the others that had been used to assemble the received text, the Textus Receptus. Uh, and so they said, perhaps, because those two manuscripts omitted Mark 16, verses 9 through 20, the argument began to come to the surface that those verses don't belong in our Bible, those verses were added later. Some copyist, somewhere or another, they, some, some even think they know who that copyist was in Armenia. Uh, they think that a copyist may have decided to add, to help out a little bit. The, they didn't like the ending of the book of Mark. It just seemed to be too abrupt and stop without a, a, a final note. And that maybe he could help out by tacking on a few extra verses put an ending on the Gospel of Mark, and he did it. And that's why later manuscripts had that ending, but these two early ones, the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus, didn't have that ending at the end of Mark, from verses 9 to the end. Uh, those manuscripts were used by a couple of scholars whose names are pretty well known, Westcott and Hort. Westcott and Hort assembled a Greek text then, using those additional manuscripts that they claimed were better, uh, and that, that Greek text became the basis for the American Standard Version, the New American Standard Version, and several others. That's why those versions contain that footnote, because they're translated from Westcott and Hort's text, rather from the Textus Receptus that the King James is translated from. So it's a, it's a, a textual difference, a, a difference in the Greek text. Now, the question is, and the debate has raged ever since, who's right about this? Does Mark 16, 9 through 20 belong in our Bibles or not? Is the Textus Receptus right to include it? Westcott and Hort better because they leave it out? Which one can we trust? What is the answer to that question? Well, let me, let me give you a, a real thumbnail sketch of the arguments for and against. I would suggest that the best arguments in favor of including those verses at the end of Mark are these. It's contained in all of the oldest and best manuscripts with the exception of the two that we mentioned, Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. It's in all the others. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, and there's, a, there's a number of them. There's, there's, th there's hundreds and thousands of various manuscripts of bits and pieces of the, of the New Testament Greek text. And Mark 16, 9 through 20, is included in the overwhelming vast majority of those manuscripts. Now, you've got you to take that into consideration. Now, some of them may not be as old as others, but it's contained in the vast majority of those manuscripts. That would argue in favor of including the verses. It's included in all of the ancient translations. When they began to translate, 
the Greek text uh, into to other languages. Uh, they, they included those verses. So uh, the early translators, they weren't translating into English. They wasn't, the, the text wasn't translated into English until just a few hundred years ago. But they were, it was translated into other languages prior to that, and it was included in all those ancient translations. And in fact, we have one of the early church writers, Irenaeus, dating from 170 A.D., quoted from this section of Mark. Uh, he included a quote of verse 11 in some of the writings that he did. So that goes way back, and Arrhenius quoted from that section. That's interesting. How would, he, how would have he known to quote from that if it wasn't in the text of that time? You see what we're saying? So that's an interesting bit of information there. So those things would argue in favor of including the verses, as our King James versions include those verses at the end of Mark. Of course, all versions usually include them, but the, but the American Standard, New American Standard, others footnote it and say maybe it shouldn't belong here. So I think these are probably the best arguments in favor of including those verses. But we can make a strong case against excluding them too, omitting them. One of them is that you got these two really complete manuscripts, the Vaticanus, the Sinaiticus, that omit the verses. And I mean, they're good manuscripts and very thorough, and it's not there. And so, you know, you can make a case, you got two ancient manuscripts, and really good ones at that, and they don't have it in there. What about that? And then you could point to the fact that although we got one of the early church writers who did mention that section from Mark, you got a number of others well-known, like Clement and Origen and Jerome, who did not mention that from the inspired text, never quoted from it, never referenced it. In other words, it's not in a lot of other writings that we might consult of uninspired early church writers. It's not there. They didn't mention it. And so you could use them as an argument against inclusion. Right? So uh, to me, and i I, I got to tell you, this is really just a very brief touch on this subject because whole books have been written about these final verses of Mark chapter 16. Scholars have devoted lifetime of work in trying to determine whether to include it or not. So we're obviously just touching the hem of the garment here. But I would argue that those make the best arguments both for and against. Now, with that in place, let's do a little analysis and see if we can come to a conclusion of what we think. I mean, it's a, it's a matter of some opinion. I actually believe we don't have to have those verses. We can prove what those verses talk about by going elsewhere in the New Testament. If you were to take them away from us, it wouldn't change anything about what we believe or practice. But I believe we can make a conclusion about whether we think it actually should be there or not. First of all, if these last verses in the book of Mark are there because some scribe, some copyist, some Armenian fellow who was sitting there with a, with a quill and a pen and writing a copy of the Greek text, if those verses in Mark are there because that single guy took it upon himself to add a few verses, to add an ending to the, to the book of Mark, if that's the case, if that got there and that's what the argument is, then I would ask the question, how could that single act of altering the text have resulted in those verses being included in so many other manuscripts and versions? As we said, the overwhelmingly vast majority of other manuscripts and verses 
versions rather, include Mark 16, 9 through 20. If what, if those were the, if those originated from a single guy just adding a few verses to the copy that he was personally making, how did his work become so pervasive and infect all of these other manuscripts, hundreds upon hundreds of them, that include what he wrote? It's a question. It's just a question, but it doesn't seem likely to me that this single copyist who decided he was going to add a little, that his work would have been preserved and, and spread like so thoroughly throughout the manuscript world, okay? Secondly, could it be, I'm just asking, could it be that those two fourth century manuscripts that omit the verses, the Sinaiticus, the Vaticanus, could it be that both of those were copied at the same time and place? Uh, there are lots of similarities between them, and even people who who think they're the best, even people who think that those two manuscripts are the best and should be followed. In other words, these are the people who would argue in favor of that Westcott and Hort, and Hort summary of the Greek text. Omit Mark nine or sixteen nine through twenty. Even people who believe that agree that there's a strong probability that those two manuscripts were copied at, a, at about the same time and at the same place. And that is why they are identical in this matter of omitting the end of Mark 16. Could it be that the scribe who was making those two manuscripts was copying from an earlier copy that somehow or another had had the end of Mark taken away? Maybe it tore off. Maybe it wore out by use. Remember, they were using fairly primitive uh, forms of writing to preserve the text in that day. Could it be that the reason he didn't put it there is because he was copying from a copy where it, the last columns of Mark had been torn away or worn off? Maybe he was copying from an inferior document. That's what we're saying. Is it possible? Well, sure, it's possible. Anything like that could have happened, right? That might be an explanation for why he chose to omit those verses. He didn't even see them. They weren't there in the copy that he was copying from. Possibly. I'm just offering a possibility, a suggestion. Is it possible... Or for that matter, is it not possible that later manuscripts, you know, we, we said that the Textus Receptus that we get our King James from was compiled from manuscripts that came from the 5th, 6th, 8th, 10th century. These 4th century manuscripts are earlier. And that's why some say they're better, because they're earlier. Because the Textus Receptus was, was compiled from manuscripts that were, that originated in the 5th, 6th, 8th, 10th century. But isn't it possible that these later manuscripts were themselves copied from much earlier manuscripts that we no longer have available to us? In other words, you've got a, you've got a manuscript here and it comes from the 8th century. Well, where did, who, where did that copy come from? Well, it had to have been copied from something that was made earlier, right? Isn't there a possibility at least that this 8th century manuscript I'm looking at that includes, by the way, Mark 16, verses 9 through 20, isn't there at least the possibility that it was copied from a text that was maybe written in the 2nd century or 3rd century? It's possible, right? In fact, it almost had to be so. And so that makes you think that at least some of those earlier uh, manuscripts might have included it, although they're lost to us now. Here's, a, I think, just a practical argument as to why we should include these last verses of Mark 16. Mark, if you read Mark 16... 
it's difficult to believe that the narrative ends at verse 8. Now, look at that. If you've got your Bibles open to Mark 16, look at the way that it ends. We might back all the way up to the very first verse. Here's Mark 16. We're going to read it, ending at verse 8, okay? When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome had brought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came to the sepulcher at the rising of the sun, and they said among themselves, Who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? And when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. And entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were affrighted. And he said to them, Be not afraid, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen, he is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. But go your way, tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall you see him, as he said unto you. And they went out quickly and fled from the sepulcher, for they trembled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man, for they were afraid. And it ends. Oh, man, does that leave you a little bit cold? It ends there? If the, if the story in Mark ends there, consider this. Nobody has seen. Mark ends his account with no one having seen the risen Christ. Three women have seen the empty tomb, and an angel has announced the resurrection, but they didn't see Jesus. In fact, the whole Gospel of Mark ends, and his account is finished without any clear identification of any eyewitness of the resurrection. That doesn't seem, to me, that doesn't seem very practical. With the, with the resurrection being such an essential fact, Take it away, we got nothing. And Mark ends his account without identifying anybody who was a witness to this very critical event. That's, that's to me, just from a, a purely practical point of view, that doesn't seem likely. It doesn't seem likely to me that Mark would have done that. And then, let's add one final point to this consideration. What about this Bible that we read from? Is it like the original can we trust it? Do we have any confidence at all that when we pick up our Bibles today and read them, that we're reading anything that's close at all to what the original was? Well, the answer, of course, is yes. This question about Mark 16 is one of the finer points of a field of study that's called textual criticism. And as we said, people have devoted whole lifetimes to studying this sort of thing. But I want to tell you, while we might debate a few verses here at the end of Mark or a few other phrases and expressions in different parts of the New Testament, the fact of the matter is that there's very little disagreement at all among scholars about our New Testament. All who study it, all who devote themselves to studying the text agree that we have extremely reliable copies of the Word of God, that we can have great confidence that when we pick up our Bibles, we are, in fact, reading an English translation of the original text that God inspired men to write. We can have great confidence in it. We, our faith should not be shaken when we think about the fact that some scholars want to debate some of the finer points of the text. That's all they're doing. They're debating some of the finer points. They're not debating what our salvation is contingent upon. They're in full agreement about the, the incredible majority of what's in our New Testament. We're talking about just infinitesimal little fractions of the text that they might have some question about. This goes to the point that we want to make in closing, and that is that God is certainly competent to reveal and preserve 
the inspired word. He said that he would. In verses like 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning verse 24, all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Notice the promise. The word of the Lord endures forever. It's not going to pass away. God is not going to let it pass away. If it is, in fact, the word of God, and we believe that it is, all the evidence supports the claim that it is, and he has promised that he will not let it pass away, then we don't have to have any doubt that we are reading true and accurate copies when we read our Bibles today. We should have confidence in it. Well, that's sort of a FYI kind of a lesson. thought you might be interested in that, and it came to my mind to deal with it because... On the virtual Bible study for the last couple of weeks, we've been dealing with a question that comes from that text in Mark 16. I believe that the snake handlers have misapplied, misunderstood, misinterpreted the, the business of handling snakes. It's not for them. God never promised it to them. And so, what's happening? Some of them are dying. Some of them are getting bitten and suffering terrible consequences and reaction to it. Because they were never promised that they could handle snakes and not be harmed by them. That was a promise to the inspired men who went about preaching the, 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 the Word of God in the first century. And God was confirming the Word with the signs. That's what Mark 16:20 said. But anyway, that's why this came to mind that we might spend just a little while thinking about those final verses in Mark 16. Someone might challenge you sometime or another. For instance, let's say that you're bringing up the point Jesus said in Mark 16, verse 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. You're trying to make your point to someone about being baptized for, for salvation, that it's necessary, that you're not saved until you're baptized. And somebody says, oh yeah, but everybody knows those last verses of Mark 16 were added later. They don't even belong in our Bible. You might get that. I've got that before. Well, of course, Take it away if you want to. We can prove from plenty of other places that you have to be baptized to be saved. But I don't tell you, I believe Mark 16, 16 and that whole section belongs there. We've given the reasons why in our brief study tonight. And so anyway, that, just, that's for your information, to be advised that, that that sometimes is a question that we might have to deal with. Thanks for your good attention to what we've had to say. We're going to sing a song of invitation. It might be that there's someone in our assembly tonight who needs and desires to be baptized for the remission of sins. Jesus taught it as a necessity, Mark 16, verse 16. Will you submit to that plan of salvation? We'd be glad to assist you in your obedience. Let us know. If you're a Christian and need our prayers, need to confess your faults and seek the prayers of the saints, we'd be glad to assist you in that way too. Let us know how we can help while we stand and sing this song.